The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Good morning, Refuge Church. Many refuge centuries ago, just kidding, it's more like a, probably like a decade ago, we've had people that you'd be like, good morning, and they'd be like, good morning, and it would like reverberate off the walls, so you were insured you were going to have a good morning here. Bob gave me like three warnings, so I should probably get started. I'd like to start our time with a prayer of confession. Father, we come to you this morning, a people acknowledging our faults before you. God, while a lot of times we live as we're always in the right, God. We are not. We know we break your laws. We do things in our own power. We accept lies as truth. We compromise our values. We're so horribly inconsistent, God. I was listening last night to a podcast, God, and it was talking about the law and how the law was just a, a way to show us our need for you, to show us our imperfections, Father, that we would know that we do not add up and that we needed something bigger and outside of ourselves, God, and we confess that that is true. We have a need for you. We need you, Lord, to come in and to change our hearts and our minds, that we would see things the way that you see them, that we could hear things the way that you hear it, Lord, and not be so offended, that we could love the way that you loved, that we could forgive the way that you forgive, that we could let go of grudges the way that you never held them, Father. Help us to be your people this morning. Forgive us our many, many trespasses from this week. And keep our eyes on you, Father, that we would live a life that brings honor and glory to your name. Amen. You guys can take a few seconds to offer your own prayer of confession. If 
you have made a confession of your sins this morning and you've asked for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, then he is faithful and has forgiven you. He has not only heard your cry, but has placed you in right standing before the Father. So whatever you believe might have been separating you this morning is not if you've confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness. Let's pray before we jump into the sermon. Father, we just ask that you would be with us this morning. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to understand you and your word. Help us to draw our appreciation of you from the character of Peter. And may we grow in our likeness of you. In your name, amen. So our intro this morning is Peter loves Jesus, but keeps making big life mistakes. Does that story sound familiar? Peter is one of the most prominent characters in the New Testament. He is one of the first people to follow Jesus and one of the first to understand Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. He is also deeply flawed. Peter hurts Jesus more often than he helps. But Jesus never stops loving and leading him. In this sermon series, you will learn how a strong and beautiful faith can come from a deeply flawed individual who faithfully follows Jesus. I tend to read our intros a little slower, and I love to read our Apostles' Creed at the end a little slower because I want to feel the weight of the words that I'm saying. And I'm encouraging you that when you read those things that you just really listen and think through the words. Um, But if you've followed along with us for the last few weeks, you know that this is our third week in our sermon series, Peter, Flawed and Faithful. Each week, we have been walking through kind of these stories that show us the character of Peter. We see his remarkable faith in the face of many weird and unique challenges. But then we also see the mistakes that he makes, which is pretty incredible for us. In the first week, we got a brief character sketch of Peter. Peter, whose birth name, right, was Simon. Simon, the son of John. Simon Bar-Jonah. Jonah and John, same name. Um, But he receives a nickname from Jesus. It is the rock long before, right, as Daniel said, Dwayne the Rock Johnson ever existed. He is our first rock. And our first encounter with him was he had just got off a work shift. He had done a lot of overnight fishing with a dragnet. You cannot dragnet fish during the day because the fish will see the net. But as he's getting off his work shift, he is tired. He has been unsuccessful. He wants to go home. Jesus, like a customer who comes in five minutes before closing, (laughs) we've all been there, right, has asked him to do something else. So he imposes himself upon Peter and he says, take me out, right? And so Peter agrees to do it. And Jesus is talking to him and telling him all these things and Peter doesn't really believe it, but he does what he says. And then there's this huge haul of fish that comes in. 
And then Peter's response is what? He falls to the knees and feet of Jesus. And he says, away from me, I'm a sinful man. Convicted of sin based off what he experiences with Jesus. And then Jesus, right, we almost like think of Jesus probably a little like we think of ourselves. Because, you know, when somebody annoys us or does something and we're like wrong, a lot of times we're like, kick the person out. Don't really want to deal with it. Don't want to see him again. If I never talk to that person again, that's fine. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? Jesus like says, hey, from today forward, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Incredible. Because God, Jesus, looks to Peter in great kindness in response to his mistake, right? To that inadequacy. And the second week, we, call, we catch up with Peter once again. And I kind of find it funny because even in today's story, Jesus is like asking them to do something or go somewhere, right? But in the second week... Jesus says, hey, you guys need to get in a boat. Meet me on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they're out on the water, and the water starts acting up, and the waves are rolling, and the wind is crashing. And uh, Jesus is kind of nowhere to be found. But as sunrise starts to happen, Jesus starts to walk across the water. And it's funny because of their superstition. They believe, right, it's a ghost. Because Daniel had talked about how they had believed there was like this portal underneath the Sea of Galilee because they didn't know how deep it was. This like realm of the dead. And he was just like a ghost coming back to probably grab them and take them back with him. But Peter, this is remarkable, notices Jesus for who Jesus is. He sees him immediately and he says, hey, Jesus says, it's me as he's coming, right? And he says, well, if it is you, Jesus, command me to come across the water. And Jesus does this, commands him to. And Peter begins to walk. But as the wind starts acting up again, Peter is distracted and he starts to sink. And then he cries out, save me. And again, inadequacy, mistake. His focus is now distracted. He is no longer focused on Jesus. Jesus responds, how? He grabs his hand, he puts him in the boat. And they respond, how? Truly, you are the son of God. I think it's incredible to think how Jesus, knowing all of Peter's inadequacies, desires for Peter to lean and learn from him. I think we see ourselves more and more like Peter as we learn more and more from Peter. Many great steps of faith and trust. This is how I would define my walk. I'm sure a lot of you would do the same. But also areas of doubt where we wish we could almost like fast forward or cut out pieces because it didn't paint us in a good light or maybe it didn't make God look good. But in the person of Peter, we get an in-depth look at his moments of great strength and his moments of hard-crushing weakness. It reminded me of this time I was like sitting with my friends and we were like talking about sports, right? And um, it's funny because I, I use the word stinks. I don't use that word. You can imagine the word I use when I talk about players that I think are not good. So my friend's a staunch Cleveland Browns fan. The Cleveland Browns have never been good, okay? <laughs> and I said to my friend, I go, their quarterback stinks. And he goes, actually, he's really not that bad. And it's not their current quarterback. It, this was years ago. And uh, I said, I bet you Cha-Cha agrees with me. 
You guys remember 242, 242? You text in any question and they'll tell you the answer. <laughs> so I start texting, does this quarterback stink? You know, and uh, Cha-Cha says, this quarterback, can't even remember who it was, he has moments of greatness followed by moments that are not so great. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, like that was so huge, right? And so I, I grab my phone and I go, huh. And I go, so does this quarterback, another quarterback, right? Does he have moments of greatness followed by moments that are not so great? And another operator answers and says, yeah, silly, we all do. We're all human. <laughs> and so I started to think about how that fit this story. And I'm like, that's Peter. Moments of greatness followed by moments that are not so great. That's us. Moments of greatness. You think of those moments when you first profess faith. And then moments where you're sitting with, at work with your friends and you're joking about something that dishonors God. Moments that are not so great. And that, that's often who we are. But as I was studying for this morning, I came across a piece in Zonder Van's compact Bible dictionary that I wanted to read about Peter. And it is, his sheer humanness has made him one of the most beloved and winsome members of the apostolic band. He was eager, impulsive, energetic, self-confidence, aggressive, and daring, but also unstable, fickle, weak, and cowardly. He was guided more by quick impulse than logical reasoning and readily swayed from one extreme to the other. That's us. So this morning, we find ourselves in yet another story about the life of Peter. The same Peter who since the last time we met, if you were to follow along in the book of Matthew, you'd see was traveling with Jesus and the other disciples through the countryside of Galilee. And then along the way, they're witnessing Jesus doing incredible and unimaginable things. And they've got the front row seat to this action. People from all over the surrounding areas were bringing the sick and unwell. You could label mute, blind, deaf, mentally unwell. All of those things. And Jesus was healing them all. Jesus was doing so much that it had caught the attention of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who when we read the Bible, we should see them as the religious Karens, right? These religious leaders were constantly questioning the wrong things. They were concerned about the how, what, and when. They couldn't celebrate the joy of a healing because if it happened on Sunday... Shouldn't happen. It's against the law. It's against the tradition. And they question Jesus. And, you know, Jesus has this moment where he really, Jesus is so cool. You know, they say to him, they say, why do your disciples break our traditions? And he said, why do you break the commandment of God to follow your traditions? And they got quiet. And then he went on a sermon where he started talking about, it's not what's coming inside a person that makes him unclean. It's what's coming out that makes them unclean or clean. It's what you have in your heart. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the heart and the heart and how it produces true faith. Because true faith is the idea that I want you to walk away with today. 
Um, the question I want you to ask is, what does your heart say about who Jesus is? And the big answer to this question is, our hearts tell us the truth about Jesus when we allow Jesus to explore our hearts. Whenever our hearts proclaim true faith, because you can only proclaim true faith when that's in your heart, and when we can recognize the excitement that Jesus has when our hearts are filled with true faith. And so I personally am a huge fan of searching for evidence. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. If Susanna and I are sitting on the couch, you know, at night, and we get to pick out TV shows, she always goes, I want something light and funny, <laughs> you know? That's just her personality. She's real bright and bubbly and sweet, you know? And um, I love that about her. But if I get to pick the show, I'm going to pick like Law and Order, NCIS, or whatever the popular cop drama is. I, I think I have access to Dan's Prime accounts. He sees some of the stuff I watch. <laughs> it's all serious, okay? I get sucked in so easy to the true crime podcasts or novels. There's just something about a story coming together. Susanna thinks I'm an old man because of this, you know? Well, that's one reason. So however... She also would tell you that I'm really good at foreshadowing or seeing how a story ends. And I think that's what I loved about studying this passage because there's so much stuff that you see in it, but there's also so much you don't see and that if we can't dig that out and figure that out, we might take it at face value and not see what's going on there. And I hope that as I fill in some of the parts for you, it gives you enough evidence to figure out what a heart says about who Jesus is when it is filled with true faith. So I want to look at our text this morning, which is Matthew 16, 13 through 20. So there were a couple chapters between the last two stories, and we summarized that. But when Jesus came to the region of, tongue twister name, word, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Really like that. Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I think this is kind of like a hint bomb here. This is what I love. So it says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? You notice those two questions were kind of similar. And I just wanted to point that out to you because I was really like amazed by the sentence structure of that. And I thought the first question, right? Who do the people say the son of man is? And then he turns to that question. He says, who do you say I am? It's like he's hinting, right? I am that I am. I am. Who do you say I am? He might be hinting to us, right? I don't know. It's an inference. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, so bar Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some power there. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So the first thing 
that I want you to notice from our text this morning, when we ask, what does your heart say about Jesus, is that Jesus explores what is in the heart of his disciples. I want you to look at Matthew 16, 13 through 15 with me this morning. And it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? There is some background we need to know in order to understand what's taking place here. Sometimes we'll read a location and we don't think much of it, right? We do that in our books all the time that we read. It'll be like, he was in Cincinnati. You know, we don't know the nuances of Cincinnati or what's going on in that city. We just read it. If we read about Pete Rose's life, we'd read that and we'd go, so he grew up in Cincinnati, but we don't know about their culture or what they do as people or the things that they're doing there. We just know it was Cincinnati. So here, location actually means something. Unknown to the reader, unless you have a good understanding of ancient first century geography, you might miss the importance of this journey because Jesus, like the other two stories where he has the disciples go and do something and they're traveling, he's traveling with them again, and they take about a two-day, on-foot, full trip to Caesarea Philippi. And this should not be confused with the area of Caesarea that has a similar name, the beautiful city established by King Herod the Great. Because this place he's taking them is not a city. As a matter of fact, this journey was 25 miles north out of the way of where they were just at. And really out of the way of anywhere that they were going missionally. It was an odd and very remote area. And why? Is because centuries before, this place was called Pania. It was named after the Greek god of nature, Pan. And Pan was a mythological creature that had horns on his head the torso of a man, and the hind end of a goat. He was known as the god of nature, the flocks, and wild. People would come here to offer sacrifices of animals, children, and valuable items. So this is not a place people of Jewish, nor today Christian faith, would find comforting. <laughs> If you were to walk through the area today, you might not know that because it is very beautiful. It was actually beautiful back then. That's why they put the shrine there. You would see a 30-foot waterfall and a river that leads to the base of Mount Hermon. Do you guys remember that when we talked about Sweeter, the, the streams that come down in the beard, like the Mount of Hermon, right? And a 70-foot rock wall that was only broken by a cave. In the back of the cave was a chasm, and in that chasm was where the worshipers would throw their offerings to Pan. And why they would throw it down the chasm was just like last week. I swear, this is getting more sci-fi and sci-fi as we go. They believed there was a portal to the underworld that Pan existed in, to Hades, to the realm of the dead. 
And that by throwing these offerings down there, they would appease Pan and keep their world at peace. And in later years, King Herod created a temple with white marble walls for Augustus Caesar. Caesar, in his lifetime, was actually hailed as Lord, as high priest, and as Savior. And when he died, they deified him, son of a god, Emperor Caesar, son of a god. So for many people, for many years, this was a place to worship other people and other things. So this kind of brings a little clarity for me of why Jesus would bring them there. Because think about it, when he's sitting with his disciples, right, amongst all this stuff that has caught people's attentions for centuries and centuries, does he blend in? Is he just another answer? Or is he burning the brightest in their heart, even with the other things that are around them? And I was thinking about this, how our culture marries into so many things. Like, guys, like, we do it, right? You've all thought this. You've all seen something on social media where you kind of were like, like, that's not biblical. And it, and it runs deep. This is not a political sermon, guys, I promise. We've all experienced that. And I was thinking about that. It's like, will you confess me even here? When you have all these other things around you, are you really mine? Will these become a distraction to you too? Are you truly ready to represent me out there? And so Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And if you notice, he didn't say, who did the governmental figure say I am? Who do the rulers say that I am? Who do the religious leaders say that I am? He knew what they thought about him. They thought that he was working by the spirit of Beelzebub to draw out demons. He wasn't the Messiah, right? So, but he's not asking that. He's saying, what are the people, you and me type people, the common people? He cared about us, flaws and all. And he says, what do they say about me? And I think the disciples knew how to answer the question. But you know like when somebody asks you a question and there's a lot of people around and you're like, what if I get it wrong? You know, you kind of look down at the ground, you might do the little foot thing. Do I say the wrong answer? You know, the Sunday school, we all go, Jesus, you know, like, and it might even be a more detailed answer than what we give a lot of times. We're just like, maybe someone else will answer. Maybe someone else will say something. I think it's funny because I'm like, what did Jesus feel like when they had not been able to just answer? Like, they had spent time with him. They had seen the miracles. They had seen his teachings. They had witnessed these things firsthand. And he says, you know, who do they say that I am? It's kind of like another distracting thing. Jesus is really just exploring their hearts, right? There's this great scenery of all this stuff. And then there's also all these things other people are saying. But who do you say that I am? Because he's going to turn it now, right? He turns it from, who do the people say that I am, to who do you say that I am? 
I don't know if there's a pause there. We don't see that. And at this point, Jesus, right, he, he said, who do they say the son of man is? He doesn't call himself the Messiah. He hasn't done that yet. And it's interesting because he uses the son of man to refer to himself 80 times in the gospel. More than any other word to refer to himself. And I think that's a position of humility. Because what the Jewish people were thinking, because of the book of Maccabees, ancient writings, guys, it's out there, you can look that up. Um, that he was going to come back as this like ruler type warrior that was going to like overthrow the government and make things right for Israel now. And Jesus' kingdom is so different than what they expected because what is he saying? Give to the government. What is the government? He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The last will be first. He says, he says forgive others their sins. It's really different from eye for an eye or what does someone owe you now? But he says, what do you say? Have you ever believed something so much in your heart but you weren't sure what to say? So you're just like, maybe somebody else will answer for me. I think that's what we're seeing. At this point, I think the disciples had an idea but they didn't want to get the answer wrong. And I think after they told them, you know, what did they say? They said, some people think you're a prophet, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. These are all things that were spoken in the Bible. That's why they believe that. They, they all had reference verses that we could have looked up with them. Um, Herod said it was John the Baptist. Um, Elijah, there's going to be a forerunner. We know that's John the Baptist. Jeremiah. Um, that there was someone coming, right? There, these things were prophesied. And, and I think that they were kind of satisfied with that answer, but I'm thinking like, you know, Jesus had just done all these miracles. He had also um, fed 4,000 people, which I forgot to say in the story earlier, right? He had fed 4,000 people, not even like, I think maybe even uh, half a chapter or a chapter before this. 4,000 men, that was what was counted, right? But if you were to count the women and children, it's probably triple, double, triple that number, which means... Seven loaves of bread, two fish fed that many people. Jesus did that. That's a miracle, okay? They witnessed this. They were there. They were a part of this. But yet, no one has a straight answer yet. So Jesus turns the question, like I said, you know, from what did the people say to what do you say? What else did they need to see? What did they miss? But we do that, right? God acts in a way in our life sometimes, and we are not always like, that's what that was. We miss it. And that leads us to the second thing. Whatever true faith is proclaimed, it's evidence of what is in the heart. And I looked at verse 16. Simon Peter had answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus has just asked a very important question, and a lot of people will answer this question differently. Think of the responses that the people gave. You know, many variations of prophets. Jesus hears the thoughts of the people and he says, but who do you say I am? And to our surprise, who answers? Who's the first person to answer? There's 12 of them. The flawed and faithful Peter. Peter's going to respond correctly. God had revealed himself to Peter. 
What had happened in Peter's heart had reached its culmination, and this was a complete act of God. And I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 12, 3, where it says, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It was revealing what was in the heart of Peter, this imperfect Peter. What must it have felt like to be Peter, the most prominent of the 12, as he boldly proclaims who Jesus is? And I think what we see from Peter in that one sentence, two things that are almost like this one-two punch. But before I say those two things, I think it's remarkable that it says, Simon Peter answered, right? Because you see the name, this is not the name Jesus gave him, that is his birth name, Simon, Simon son of Jonah, bar Jonah, Peter, Simon, description word, the rock. So you almost expect a solid answer here. This is like him in his strength, right? This moment of greatness, not the moment of weakness, right? And so what's the response? It's that one-two punch. It's one, that Jesus is the Messiah, and two, that Jesus is the son of the living God. The word Messiah is an Old Testament word. The New Testament word for that word is Christ. That's why those names are used interchangeably. That is not Jesus' last name as much as you hear it that way. Okay? The word Messiah was a term that meant anointed one. Your kings, your priests in the Old Testament, before they did things, were anointed with oil. They were set apart, chosen by God. So he is declaring, Jesus, you are the chosen one, set apart, for God's purpose. Even if the Jewish people miss this, this is who you are. So Peter is literally saying he's the chosen one. Jesus has not at this point revealed himself as this. This is Peter saying this. How incredible this must have been on the ears of Jesus, spoken by imperfect Peter. Moments ago, Jesus lost his footing and he was sinking. But now he's proclaiming. Fickle, right? Recall, this is the same Peter who not long ago had thrown himself at the feet of Jesus. Away from me, I'm a sinful man. When Jesus had blessed him with that great haul of fish. This is the very same Peter who gets nervous and sinks. Hard and painful things have happened in his life, but it created a place in his heart that allowed the spirit to work. God is using this imperfect person to glorify himself. What incredible evidence for us that if God could use Peter, who is known to be fickle, back and forth, that he can use us the same way. The second piece of Peter's proclamation is just as incredible as the first because he says Jesus is the son of the living God. Remember where they are right now. They are right in front of a shrine to Caesar, the Caesar who in most of his life was hailed as Savior, Lord, and High Priest. Remember, Emperor Caesar, son of a God. Peter is literally in this moment, in this place, denouncing the power of all other gods besides the one true living God. It was a slap in the face to those that the shrines were built to. The re- Peter is declaring that Jesus is the only fit Savior Lord. 
and high priest. The very reflection, as the book of John says of the Father, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, that Jesus. Peter's heart and life, although massively flawed and evidenced by those mistakes we've talked about, had been altered. Even in his weakness, Jesus was matchless and infinitely stronger. It's like what Paul had said in Philippians, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So he wasn't distracted by what people said or the surroundings around him. His experience, the spirit working within him, he knew Jesus and who Jesus was. And I think think it kind of reminds me too of like, Some of our first moments when we become a believer, right? We don't know everything up front. We don't know the pain and hurt we're going to experience. We don't know the hard conversations we're going to have with other people. Usually it's a first step. We don't know the weight of what we're experiencing. I remember I said a prayer with my aunt on the telephone, right? And I got off the phone and I'm like, okay. I never thought of what it might look like to actually live that out. And what it meant to forgive other people. And what it meant to put others first. And what it meant to um, die to myself and to live differently. I didn't put much thought into that. Because all I could think about was that first moment, that first second of saying, yeah, I believe. I believe it. I believe it's true. And I think that's what we're seeing from Peter. I think we're seeing this conviction and confession of faith. Um... The third thing, Jesus celebrates when true faith comes out of hearts. Now, if you look at the reply of Jesus, Matthew 16, 17 through 20, it says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. So he does that again. It's Simon, not Peter, but it is Peter. (laughs) For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gate." The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Everything that happened in this encounter had been building to this moment. Jesus is absolutely excited about what has transpired in this short meeting at Caesarea Philippi. Immediately, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Notice there's no nickname. Jesus calls Peter Simon, and Simon was a common name. So to make sure this is distinct, he says the name of his father following it. But in um, blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father, It should be no coincidence to us that it was not revealed by flesh because the Bible says that flesh does not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not of anything great that Peter has done, but it's the fact that God has revealed the truth to him. God has literally been teaching Peter. It had come from the Father. It was a teaching moment that Jesus had entered into with his disciples and Peter and flawed and imperfect as he was, was the star student and Jesus was just excited about it. Any teachers in here, you know what I'm talking about. P- 
Peter, you are blessed because you have learned from the hand of the Father. You see me for who I am because God has shown you. And I tell you that Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is declaring Peter to be worthy of the nickname. Because if you notice, he says, you are Peter. You are the rock. And I think that's more of a description. Because I think a lot of times we say, Peter's the rock that Jesus built upon. It was the convictions and confessions that Jesus built on. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, Peter was a living stone. We are living stones as we embrace the true faith that comes from a heart that has been impacted by the Holy Spirit, that we live out Jesus' mission. And upon that, God builds his church, not a building of people, but a gathering of people who share true faith in Christ in common. That's what the church is. That's what Peter had in his heart that Jesus was building upon. Jesus' church, not Peter's church. Because it's easy for us to think our church or this person's church. It's Jesus' church. And Peter is as much of a rock as Jesus is his rock, the identity. And Hades cannot come against what I'm building. Hades, the realm of the dead, or Sheol, another word that would be equivalent to that, or even the idea of hell. You know, it's almost like I think, we think, I can stand against anything. <laughs> so if the train of hell comes crushing into me, I can stand strong because I have Jesus. And I think really, we're, we're to be empowered people by the Spirit of God that stand like this more than this because we can lean into a world that needs Jesus because our power is greater. I read an author who wrote that I used to think the idea, right, of an onslaught of hell coming against the believer, but I don't think hell's ready for a believer that's focused on Christ. And I think that's the way that we should see it. It's this solid position that had made Peter the rock. It's like, and, and where do I get that from? Peter talks about this in the first book bearing his name. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, like Peter, are the living stones that are being together built as a spiritual house. And there is power there among the imperfect when they share in this true faith. This speaks highly of a God who would have every reason to throw us out with our fickle, impulsive, and unstable lives, but instead he reaches out just like he did in the first two stories, right? And he says, I want you to learn and lean on me. So what do we do with this information? One, I just want you to allow Jesus this week to explore your heart. And maybe you're going to explore your heart too. Look for the distractions and confess your weakness. You know, earlier I talked about how we 
kind of marry into things in the culture. Look at some of that stuff that you might have, maybe I've compromised in this way, or maybe I've thought something that isn't true, or maybe I haven't had a conversation because I don't know how to have that with somebody. Um, and I want you to pray, and I want you to say, God, I want you to lead me in this, like through this. Show me what's true. Help me to have true faith, real faith in you. Cry out to God to save you from that, just like Peter did when he was in the boat sinking, right? He cried out. Jesus responds. Two, fill your heart with true faith. Stop looking for quick fixes and the right feeling. I think I've spent a lot of my life, if it feels good, must be good, right? But we're looking for truth, and truth isn't always a feeling. And when we find it, we need to cling to it. What is that truth? What is the truth that we should be clinging to? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's the same answer Peter gave. It's Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that when I am powerless, when I am weak, when I have no ability to stand in anything, Jesus does. He is the power within me that gives me power, that hell can't stand against, that gives me authority, that makes me right with God, that even in my Moment of making a mistake, I get to run back to God. And when you experience that time, run back as fast as you make a mistake. Don't, don't allow that to become separation. Three, when you experience Jesus' celebration of your true faith, celebrate it as well. You saw his reaction. There was power that came there. Um, he immediately said, I'm going to give you the keys, right? I didn't talk about that at all. I'm going to give you the keys to loose and bind. That's power. They had to do with a Jewish tradition, this rabbinical teaching of loosing and binding things. You have scripture, guys. He gave you truth, right? That you could determine what that is, that his spirit would show you that. And as you, as you read and as you learn, as you learn from God and you become more in tune with this true faith, and Jesus is celebrating that, I want you to celebrate it. I want you to be just as excited as he is. So Peter is someone we can relate to. Why? Because we are like Peter. We are fickle, impulsive, and make just as many mistakes as we do the right choices. But God still loves us. God desires to teach us and to help us to become dependent on him rather than live in our inadequacies. Don't allow the mistakes to decide what the future looks like. And when you make a mistake, just as quickly as you fall, run back to him because he continues to write your story. And he continues to work through an uh, flawed and imperfect people. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you that you are nothing like us. We are so easy to miss out on what you're doing and take credit for things that would not have been experienced if it wasn't for you. Help us to see your greatness and to respond with our lives in true faith. Help us to live lives that proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remind us that you love us. Help us to revel in your goodness and not be distracted by our shortcomings. We love you. Amen. So, I'm going to...
invite you guys, if you need prayer this morning, if you would like prayer, you don't even have to have that as a need. You could just like prayer. I like prayer. You can go and talk with Ibrahim, who's standing right there on the side. He would be happy to pray with you. He's one of our elders here. Um, and that's available from now until we leave, I believe. And then uh, second, I'd like to invite you into a time of communion. Uh, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was sitting with his disciples, the same people that we talked about in this story. And uh, he took the cup, or he took the bread, and he said, hey, this is my body, which was broken for you. And when you eat of it, you remember that, right? And then in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant that was paid for by the shedding of my blood. And when you drink of it, you're proclaiming my coming kingdom over and over again. Um, so that's it. Thank you, guys. Have a great morning.